This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, welcome to The Table Podcast. I'm Bill Hendricks, Executive Director for Christian Leadership. And we on The Table Podcast discuss issues of God and culture. And today we want to talk about what does it mean to be a Christ follower in the workplace And it's my very special privilege to welcome David Gill, who has put really a lifetime of thinking as well as practice into his recently released book, Workplace Discipleship 101, A Primer. David, welcome to the table. It's great to be with you, Bill. So let me ask you right off the bat, I'm thinking of a software programmer who works in a giant corporation. I'm thinking of someone who's filing insurance claims in a doctor's office. I'm thinking of someone who's delivering packages for UPS or Amazon. I'm thinking for someone who's raising children as a stay-at-home mom. So these people love Jesus, and they have a notion that their day-to-day, what we call their work, how they spend most of their day, somehow their faith and, and their walk with Christ ought to inform that. So where do they get started? What's what's the first thing they need to do as they think about that? Well, I think that uh, they should get a copy of your book, "Your Work <laughs> Matters to God," which oh, you're kind. is a classic in our uh, in our whole domain. You know, back in 1988 when that came out, that was just such a joy to find because a lot of us out here in California were uh, meeting to talk about these these exact issues. So. I, I always say the first thing to do is is really to to be committed, you know, to to pray and say, Lord, I want to honor you twenty four seven with what I do, and I don't really know exactly the difference you want to make in my life, but I want to make that difference. So I really do think we need to make a commitment, almost like you know, when you become a Christian, it's really important to say, okay, I believe, I accept you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior, and not just think, well, we. We grow into this, you know, we inherited from our parents or something else. So I'd say make a commitment. Then I would say find somebody else who's uh, struggling with the same issues. Uh, In my book, I have a whole chapter on building partnership, and I often call it a posse, you know, and and these things are complicated and they require, you know, creativity. And uh, so early on, you know, if you're a if you're a mom raising kids or a even a stay-at-home dad or whatever, you know, we've got these days, I would say find somebody else who's in the same situation and say, why don't we explore together the difference that God would like to make in the way we do it? So, yeah, we want to learn from the world around us and our schooling and everything else, uh, what are the best best practices in a tech company or something. But what we want to know is, what is the difference that Jesus would make uh, so that we become the salt of our company and the light of our industry and not just doing what everybody else does. Because we think, you know, there's a lot of good in the world and in the working world, but we also were fallen. And there's a lot of room for improvement in our 
practices, our work practices, the way we treat our colleagues or our employees, the way we relate to our customers, all of those things. And so what's the difference that God would make? So I'd say, first of all, really commit to that project Mm. and then find somebody else to pray with and work with and begin the journey. Well, you also make the point, uh, for many people, they feel like they're the only person in their workplace who is a Christ follower. And so there's yeah. a sense of loneliness, and uh, and that's perilous, because if you feel like you're, you're all alone, um, you, you know, you, you feel that isolation and so forth. So having somebody alongside is critical. Yeah. I mean, yesterday, or I mean Sunday, I did a guest sermon from my home church out here, and I was preaching on the three temptations of Christ. Mm. And I pointed out that, you know, these temptations arise. The first one is in the desert, the second one on the pinnacle of the temple, and the third one on a high mountain where you could see all the glory of the world around you. But in each case, Jesus was alone with the devil. Mm. You know, and so one of my uh, one of my recommendations is don't get alone with the devil. Always always have somebody with you. So I, I said in the sermon, I said, you know, I'm not going in the desert alone. I'm going to take my wife with me. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, it's I'm kind of joking a little bit, but really that's true. Is Absolutely. Don't get alone with the devil, you know, to struggle against evil in the world. Well, and it's really living out the promise that Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there there am I in the midst. And and so when we get with another believer or two believers and and we're committed, as you said, we've, we've, we've drawn that line in the sand to say, I'm in and I want Jesus' will to be done then we begin to beseech him and ask with others, okay, what does that really look like? And, and he shows up and begins to guide us. Um, Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, not one by one. Exactly. And the only time anything was not good in the creation, it's not good for man to dwell alone. We need a companion. We need, we need helpers. You know, they, every David needs a Jonathan. Every Naomi needs a Ruth. You know, this is just a consistent message cover to cover in the Bible. In your book, you talk about um, sharing our faith at work, but one of the points you make in there is the importance of doing an excellent job. Tell us more about how that builds credibility for when we do try to share our our faith. Yeah, I have a chapter. I, I have actually, you know, five chapters on five ways, I think, in which our discipleship at work gets expressed. And one of them is on how do we share our faith? How do we actually engage in in evangelism, sharing the good news? We want to do that, you know, and that's part of the Great Commission. But that's going to be a lot more effective if our life has already been good news to the people with whom we work Mm -hmm. and to our customers and to our boss. So that's why a work ethic where I come to work and I, I put out my best self and my best energy. And yes, I want to stand up for wrongdoing and speak up. But on the other hand, I want to be a a positive force, a force for solutions. I want to be the kind of employee who, when somebody comes dragging into work and they're looking really down, I'm going to say to them, hey, buddy, what's going on? You know, are you okay? And if somebody comes in really happy, I'm going to say, hey, did you just win the lottery or something? You know, so (laughs) reaching out to my, my colleagues, uh, and then another thing I, I, I point out is, uh, you know, a lot of times our our best evangelism, our best sharing of the faith happens when people ask us hmm. about our faith. Because in a lot of companies, it's inappropriate to try to proselytize right. or, you know, promote our Christianity any more than Islam or anything else. But if somebody asks you, 
tell me where you're coming from or what why are you why do you act this way why are you like uh interested in me like nobody else is you know or something that's the best opportunity to share our faith is when somebody else is that so we provoke that partly by our behavior and our on our model so i ask in my book you know what would be a beatitudes shaped life hmm. you know like a if if I'm a person who is poor in spirit instead of arrogant and right. full of myself all the time, what if I'm a person who can mourn and really weep with those who weep around me, you know, and really take responsibility and not just be somebody who blames others? What if I'm somebody who hungers for righteousness and the right thing to do? I have that ethical kind of hunger. What if I'm a peacemaker? I'm a team builder and not a conflict builder. You know, a beatitude-shaped character uh can have a huge impact on others and really uh and just without ever sharing the gospel it's preparing the seat the, the the soil for somebody else so it's that kind of thing bill uh it's the it's the kind of the way we approach our work and the kind of impact we want to make and there's a whole lot more to be said about it but i think you know uh let your conduct among the nations you know be mm-hmm. worthy of christ walk in a way don't just talk in a way that glorifies God, but walk in a way that glorifies God. Well, you're reminding me of uh, a, a, a DTS grad, actually, uh, now with the Lord, named Ray Stedman. I know you're from the West Coast. You, you probably I know knew him. Ray Stedman. I admired him, and I know him. Peninsula Bible Church. Absolutely. And he was a great friend of my dad's. And I actually have a recording of him here in Dallas Seminary in 1984, and he was talking about Ephesians 4, you know, which talks about the the gifts for equipping, and he specifically honed in on on the pastor-teacher gift and was making the observation that that gift is actually far more widely distributed in the body of Christ than simply the, you know, the paid professionals. It's, it's And there's a, there's a reason for that, because the, the rest of Ephesians 4 says that these, these saints, these everyday Christians, are distributed, you know, all through the work world and all through the workplace and the community. And they run into people that have what we would call pastoral needs. And you just mentioned a bunch of them. So somebody comes to work and they're mourning, they're grieving. You know, they've they've lost a loved one or, or they've gotten bad news about their parents' health or, you know, they have a little one that's sick um, or they've had a financial reversal. Uh, people come in with, with all kinds of troubles. And what a great opportunity that Christ followers have to simply be there for those people, pray for those people offer to walk alongside them in whatever situation they're in, and in doing so, they're really meeting and speaking into pastoral needs. And in that context, people experience something of Jesus, and that oftentimes will promote conversation. Tell me more about what's what's prompting you to, to, to treat me this way. Yeah, you know, I, I may have read this in your book. I don't know where. I didn't. This isn't original with me. But, you know, I think about the fact that uh, the church I am part of now has about 500 members. Now, I know that's just a small church by Texas standards, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we we may have 10 or 20 visitors. I can't really, uh, I'm not really sure, but we may have 10 or 20 visitors. We always have some visitors at our church, and they, they get a lot of love and a lot of uh, truth, I think, when they come, and so it's all good. Uh, but of us 500, let's say, uh, 400 of us are going, or we'll, we'll give the youngest 100 a break a little bit. But the other 400 of us 
we probably have 10 significant relationships out there, either in work or our next door neighbors or on the block. So Mm -hmm. if your work is to be a stay at home parent, you still have, you know, the 10 or 20 people living right near you. And and the people at the grocery store, you get to know after going back many times, whatever. But you figure 400 people out there in the world, uh, we have 10. So we have a congregation of 4,000. And so it really is important, as you say, that God gives us gifts of, you know, gifts of evangelism, but gifts of caring and pastoral care and you know, like you, Bill, I've spent my life as kind of an entrepreneur trying to build organizations and recruit students and things like this. And people sometimes say, well, how did you do this? You know, you didn't have any money or your organization. And I always say, well, you know, honestly, it's pastoral care, hmm. even for my MBA students, you know, or building an MBA alumni. It's all it really is pastoral care. And that's the kind of thing that's not just for pastors. It's for all of us to walk in the ways of our own shepherd and pastor Jesus Christ, you know, and care for the people around us. Well, you mentioned your background. Uh, I was going to ask you uh, to give us a bit of that story. I mean, you, you've you been thinking about these things since you were 20 years old as a college student. Tell us more about that. Well, you know, Bill, I grew up in a uh, a, a tradition called the Plymouth Brethren, which mm-hmm. actually has influenced uh, Dallas Seminary yes. a lot, and they weren't all—they uh, weren't perfect by any means. And it's a little denomination, a little sect, you could say, that's disappearing to some extent because they've succeeded, and most other churches believe in the things that they did. But anyway, one of the core things is everybody in the body of Christ has a gift and is expected to exercise it, hmm. you know, at church, but. Jesus is also Lord of the whole of life. And so, you know, like people say, if Jesus is Lord at all, then he's Lord of all, Mm. you know. So I grew up in a family and in a church that drilled that into me that, you know, Jesus must have something to do with what I'm studying at Berkeley. By the way, this this little separatist group uh, didn't believe – I was in the really – uh, closed, right. exclusive okay. Pl- Plymouth Brethren, who who really feared being exposed to bad doctrine by other other Christian groups. Okay, so as a result, none of us ever went to a Christian school of any type. Uh, mm. We weren't allowed to participate in Youth for Christ or any of these kinds of things. This is excessive, believe me. Yeah, but as a result, we went to these public schools and we learned how to be a Christian in a public environment like that. So hmm. all of the people who were headed for college from my Oakland church, we either went to Cal or Stanford. If you're poor like me, you went to Cal. <laughs> <laughs> you had right. money, you went to Stanford. So there weren't many at Stanford. <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, I automatically went there. Well, you know, uh, when I went to Cal for the first time, I was really serious about, I had to get serious about studying. Uh, in high school, I was interested in football and chasing my girlfriend, who's now been my wife for 54 <laughs> years, so it was a good move. But still, I didn't think that much about what I was studying in high school. But at Berkeley, I started really thinking, okay, what should I study? And and then I began thinking, what's the difference that Christ would make? Hmm. And I was a history major by the time I was a junior, and I was 20 years old, and I started thinking, you know, in my history studies here at Cal, we have some of the greatest historians and 
Pulitzer Prize winners in the country, but they never talk about God, and they don't even like to talk about religion as any kind of causal or influential factor factor in history, including uh, in a course I took on the Reformation, which was explained in <laughs> economic and political terms. Wow. So, meanwhile, then, I'm going to church, and in my personal life, we're praying, oh, God, would you be present? Would you help us with this Vietnam War and with uh, civil rights and other things that were crazy going on at those times? We're saying, God, would you would you intervene? Would you have an influence? So here I am in my personal life, believing in a God who cares about history. And then professionally, vocationally, I'm studying with people who don't think that's anything. So that was really the trigger for me, Bill, was to try to figure out how should I think hmm. about God and history? So eventually it led right after Cal to a, a master's degree program at San Francisco State, and my thesis was called The Problem of God's Role in Human History. And I wrote that for uh, a secular three-member master's thesis committee over there. And so that really <laughs> fired me up. You know, I was thinking, yeah. we can we can bring these subjects up in the academy. And then I also was going to be a public school teacher. High school teacher was my, my uh, dream. And uh, so I, I studied the teaching uh, cl classes and got my credential, but nobody ever talked about Jesus as a teacher right. or Paul or any of these other people. And so what what can I learn about being a great teacher from Scripture? You know, that might, and then how does that work out in a public school setting? I'm not going to be an evangelist per se. I'm going to be a teacher, and I want to respect all that. But So it was those integrative questions and then trying to figure out where can I get help I looked at seminary catalogs from Dallas to Fuller to everybody else. Nobody had courses on on how to think about history or even how to think about work or think about right. study. Right. So that just became a, a lifetime uh, pilgrimage of mine. And I eventually I went back to uh, graduate school at the University of Southern California and did a Ph.D. in an ethics program hmm. because, Bill, I felt like it's not just about how to think Christianly, but it's how to behave Christianly, because that's going to be a witness in its own right. So mm -hmm. I wanted a Christian mind, but I also wanted a Christian set of values, discipleship, behavior. So I felt ethics was the best way to get at it. And then after USC, I've been a professor all my life, uh, sometimes a, an interim pastor too, which has been great, but, but basically working with uh, students and mostly in the uh, theological context, well, a little over half in theological seminary context, like my last job was at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston, but also teaching MBA students and consulting out in the business world and helping companies and organizations uh, build a, what I call a, uh, an ethically healthy organization. And it's all about what I've learned from Scripture, from the Decalogue, from the Beatitudes, from all the other classic stuff in the Bible, and then translating that into business speak and work speak and organizational speak. What I mean by that is vocabulary that can communicate without requiring a conversion in advance. And then later on, you know, a lot of these people, they say, where did you get those ideas from? Uh, <laughs> where are these ideas coming from? And then I say, well, I, I have to tell you, it's because I grew up as a Christian and I study this stuff and I just figure it is so insightful. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest 
to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. So I know we've got career. That's my career in two minutes. Yeah, I know we've we've got any number of business people listening uh, to this podcast. And that, of course, is is one of the big challenges that that's always brought up. Is well, how do I, how do I live and work in this in this rough and tumble business world? And I'm around all these people that take ethical shortcuts and so forth. How can you possibly expect me to do the right thing in a context like that? What's your response to that? Well, I think you know one of the temptations is to become, uh, you know, sin detectors and and denounce, denouncers of evil, mm. you know, and we can spend a lot of our time uh, focusing on how do we stop, uh, you know, bad things from happening. And so we've kind of got our antenna up to see what's unethical, what's illegal, and what's unfair, and let's stop those things. And, you know, that's what... Uh, you know, my, my friend who I've worked with a lot over the years, Al Ayersman, yes, uh, former Boeing executive. Well, when I was first working with him back in the 80s and we were talking about this, he said, he said, yeah, that's damage control ethics. It's, it's driven. The agenda is driven by responding to damage. And, and damage means our brand is going to be harmed. Or we might get sued, we might get indicted, mm. we might end up with a prison sentence or a big fine, or, you know. Just it's, worried it's about avoided. the consequences. And so the ethical agenda is driven by damage control. Right. But I said, you know what? The Bible doesn't teach damage control ethics, it teaches mission control ethics. Mm. Good. You know, where Paul is saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. So. Yes, we have to engage in courageous damage control at times, no doubt about it. It's like we're embarking across the sea in a leaky boat, and so we have to be patching holes from the first moment we take off. Uh, we can't pretend everything's fine. But on the other hand, the longer-term solution is to work at building ethically healthy departments, neighborhoods, organizations. And I think the first step has to do with purpose. It has to do with mission. And we have to get the right kind of mission that brings out the best in people. Now, how do we do that? We try to awaken in them the image of God. Hmm. So I always say, Bill, the first thing to do, and when I'm consulting with a company, is I say, I can't just write you an ethics code and create an ethics training program. Let's talk, first of all, about the mission of the company. And the leaders of the company, your main job is to be the herald and protector of the mission. And the mission's got to be inspiring, and it's got to be true. It can't just be words. So where does that come from? In my book, I have a chapter on this, which is really saying we need to understand the character and activity of God. And so what is that? I divide it into six things. God is the creator. God is the sustainer. God is the provider of wisdom, the herald of justice and fairness, 
God is the redeemer and God is the finisher, the mm. omega, and not just the alpha. And so those characteristics are in us because we're made in the image of that God. Or if you want to simplify it, you can say he's the creator and the redeemer. Everybody has that DNA to respond to an opportunity to build something good and beautiful or to be creative in their own little department or whatever. Everybody has it in their DNA to respond positively with an opportunity to help somebody or to fix some problem. We all feel better if we do that kind of thing. So to align the mission of the company, the organization, the church, my family with those things. And some companies will be more the creative, innovative types, and others are more the healing, redemptive types like healthcare. Sure. Uh, but all of us have that in us, and, and it's by getting the mission aligned with that. Then secondly, it's asking what are the core values that we need to embed in all of our structure, our culture, and, and find in the character of the people we hire, the values that will enable and incentivize people to achieve that mission with excellence. And then below that, we ask about guidelines and principles for practice, which is the ethics code. So that's kind of a, a, a summary of, of a bigger strategy than just responding to what's wrong. Well, it, it certainly highlights the significant importance that uh, leaders who are Christ followers have in shaping the cultures where they work to the extent they have influence on that. Yeah. And uh, what I'm hearing you suggest is you can you can uh, promote those core values and those uh, those likenesses to God in an in a company even if the other people in the company are not necessarily Christ followers. You you, you don't have to use the Bible verses, but you can because these aligning with these things promotes good. It 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 when when we do that, things tend to happen that are good. And uh, it's like God's built into the fabric of the universe and the way life works, you know, certain core basic principles. I mean, like the most obvious is love your neighbor as yourself. In the main, if, if you treat other people the way you want to be treated, then good stuff's generally going to happen. You know, another one is if you work hard and long and diligently at a task, eventually you're going to reap the, the benefits and the fruits of that labor. And wherever humans line up with those sort of core principles that what you call ethical guidelines then good stuff tends to happen and and people always want to flourish they always want to see good stuff happen so yeah. uh, you don't have to necessarily quote the bible verses behind these things but you can still influence for for god yeah i mean paul paul said uh you know in romans that people who don't have the law of god the old testament right they nevertheless have it written on their heart, and they have a conscience that bears witness. Now, the reality is some people in the world are so broken, hmm. and, and they're so broken that they actually respond to need by with, with, with uh, making it worse, hmm. you know, and they don't respond very well because they've been so broken by their own bad choices or by the abuse of others, you know, whatever. So. No, everything's not going to work out, and and I think that's why, you know, like I, I what I've often do done with my MBA students or or uh, even in companies is all after we've done the mission part of this, uh, I'll say, okay, now what we need to do is figure out what are the key core values that will enable, uh, best enable this the achievement of this this mission. And I say, here's I'm going to give you a sheet of 
a set of values here, uh, characteristics, you could say, for people and, and our policies and stuff. And I'd like you to go, go through the sheet and circle the ones that you think are most important to the way we function here at Harrison's and Associates Construction or whatever. And what I do is I do have, you know, a lot of the core values that you read, integrity, all these other things, but I also have in there uh, really representations of the Beatitudes. Mm. So instead of saying poor in spirit, I'll say humble, teachable, mm-hmm. open, right. uh, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and so in the end, I've often proposed, uh, I've given lots of talks on, on eight, uh, eight characteristics of a healthy organizational culture. I've done this in secular settings to mm-hmm. rotary clubs, right. to business school audiences and people, they they usually they say, you know, this is really brilliant stuff. Where'd you get this from? You know, that kind of thing. And no, it doesn't make them a Christian, uh, but it draws them. Yes. The wisdom draws them because a lot of people have this idiotic thought that this stuff is irrelevant. It's old fashioned. It's no, it's very relevant. It, and you just haven't heard about it like right. that before. You've never had a pastor or anybody apply this to your business or your organization, your school environment, culture, things like that. So that's what you and I, Bill, have been all about, is rallying people to see the Bible is a gold mine of, of insight. And it's not just a superficial t- quoting of a verse. Right. It's, it's an insight, you know, it's, and... Uh, it's what Proverbs so, calls... It's an adventure. It's what Proverbs calls wisdom, which is the skill yeah. of living, Hakma. Absolutely. We, we have just a little less than two minutes left, but one of the points that uh, you, you speak into is the importance of bringing prayer into our work. I think for many people that's a new thought. You know, we, we pray at Bible studies, we pray at church, we pray for the missions department, we pray for, you know, the new building that's going to go up. Many people never think to pray about their work. Say just a word about that. Well, I think that's is really important. It's two pieces. Uh, one piece is we need to do it more in church, and I, I'm a big praying for work of, at church. Of yeah, at the church, I encourage pastors to bring their healthcare people to the front of the that's church good. and commission them and pray for them and so on. The artists, but I also think on a personal level, if we really believe we want God to guide us at work, we should be talking to Him about it, and and so every day I think we should pray and say, Lord, would you give me guidance? Help me represent you in the workplace and those problems. And so I I recommend a lot of different, in my book, I have a chapter on this recommending several different ways that, that I've done it and that other people have made sure that work is part of our, our prayer life. So I've over my life, I mean, I always pray about the emergencies, but I also say we should pray proactively before there's an emergency. And so every Monday, you know, I usually focus my prayers on my upcoming work week and I say, Lord, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I want it to be holy and uplifted in my work, and your will be done in my world mm. uh, this week, in my work as it is in heaven. And give me, Lord, what I need to work this week, and protect me from temptation, Lord. And uh, and yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. I want that to be evident in the way I approach my work this way. So be proactive in my prayer life. Well, that's outstanding. David Gill, thank you for being with us today on the Table Podcast Workplace Discipleship 101, a primer. Heartily encourage you to get a hold of this book. It, it, it's a book that I wish had been written 30 years ago. It's practical, it's precise, and to the point, 
and very relevant to every workplace disciple. Uh, thank you for being with us on today's Table podcast. Uh, if you'd like to go deeper with David, we're going to have another conversation on DTS Plus, and you can subscribe to that. And uh, but, but be sure and subscribe to the Table podcast, and have a good day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Table podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.